0: To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com.
1: You are listening
0: to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So before we begin, I want to direct your attention to WealthFormula.com. Right now, you can actually download... A free copy, a PDF copy of Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which was my international best-selling book that was available only on Amazon until recently. You can now download that. What I would recommend you do is take that PDF and attach it to an email and make a list of all the people that you don't want to have die broke and send it off to them. They will appreciate it. So, again, that's wealthformula.com. Download that book. There are lots of other things on that site that you might enjoy. Specifically, you can also sign up for the Weekly Wealth Widget, which is my new educational newsletter for people who want to increase their financial IQ. I send out a small morsel of financial education every week that will slowly but surely increase your financial IQ. I also want to mention that one of our other sponsors Small Change has an active opportunity going on right now that you might want to check out. You can invest in luxury net zero townhouses in Los Angeles and energy efficient, affordable housing in Washington, D.C. Both opportunities have a 10 percent projected return on debt investment. So in a full return of interest and capital is anticipated at 12 months. So go check that out at smallchange.com. I've spoken in the past about how I believe that time is the currency of wealth. In other words, it's not dollars or euros that most of us are after, but rather time. I mean, we want to be able to do what we want when we want. Some of us love our careers and wouldn't change that part of our lives, but some of us would absolutely love to eliminate our careers and do something completely different. Now, what would you do with all the time in the world if you had it? I mean, if you suddenly didn't have to work, would you just go out and play golf and quote unquote retire? Man, you know what drives me crazy is people who say, do this and you can retire. I I can't stand that, right? Listen, the idea of retirement is the bill of goods that most high-paid professionals are sold. You work your butt off and pack away money into your retirement account so that one day, finally, you too can retire and play golf or tennis or whatever you want to do for a couple years before you die. And frankly, that sounds terrible to me. I don't know about you. I'd be bored to death and I'd probably die, you know, of boredom before I died of something else if I just stopped doing everything and I just retired. Listen, to me, being wealthy doesn't mean doing nothing or just doing leisure things. It means doing what you really, really want to do with your life. It means having a purpose. In fact, to me, the pinnacle of wealth is defined by Abraham Maslow. In 1943, he had this. Theory of human motivation, which I'm sure most of you recognize when you hear about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? We've, we've seen that there's that little pyramid that has the physiological needs at the bottom, like food and water. And then just above that, you have safety and like having a roof over your head, for example. In fact, I've referred to that pyramid a few times on this show, and I've also referred to it. In my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, it's sort of the idea behind investing in Maslow level one and two things, um, things that people need. I consider those things that tend to be the lowest risk investments, like roofs over your head, et cetera. That's why I like multifamily real estate, for example. However, we don't talk much about what's at the top of this pyramid. And what's at the top of the pyramid is actually something called self-actualization. Now, self-actualization might encompass many things. It could be you know, expressing one's creativity or quest for spiritual enlightenment, pursuit of knowledge and the desire to give or positively transform society. I mean, these are all examples of self-actualization. I mentioned to you that on the Summit at Sea a few weeks ago, the Real Estate Guys event, that I had a chance to, you know, talk to Robert Kiyosaki one-on-one uh, a fair amount. And as you can imagine, you know, that was really interesting. And some of the things that we talked about, um, really related to what came down to his self-actualization. Now he called this his mission, which one could also characterize as self-actualization. And in his case, his self-actualization is to be very active and promote financial education. It is truly the mission of his life. I mean, the guy does not need any money, folks. So why does he do this? It's because He has a purpose in his life, and he's driven to do it. And that is, to me, the pinnacle of wealth. So let's be clear. I mean, you don't have to have Robert Kiyosaki-level wealth to have a master motive or mission. On the other hand, you can't be living paycheck to paycheck in golden handcuffs. You see, even high-paid professionals have concerns about security. I mean, you can have a six-figure income and still have Maslow-level-2 concerns. All you house poor doctors know exactly what I'm talking about. You bought a great big house and you worry about, you can't do this, you can't do that because you have a great big mortgage you have to pay. Listen, your problems are the same, but they're different from somebody who doesn't have money. In some respects, they're worse because they're self-inflicted. You know, a person struggling to pay rent because they don't make enough money is one thing, but struggling to pay your BMW car payment, well, Come on, guys. I mean, that's not the road to self-actualization either. And listen, I'm not telling you to be a saver. I don't like that either. I'm just saying, listen, let's, let's just think for a moment about what we would do if we could not worry about making you know, a certain amount of money every month just to pay our bills. The golden handcuffs are a big roadblock to self-actualization, folks. And until you feel free, until you've gotten out of those shackles, you'll not really be able to find your own mission in life. And this is all to say that time may be the currency of wealth, but you still got to know how to spend that currency wisely. Now, today's show is tangentially related to, you know, all of this uh, message that I I just gave you, but you see, when I talk about self-actualization, that really requires you to get out of your own comfort zone and think about your life critically, and that's exactly what my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast today, Chris Martinson of peakprosperity.com did over a decade ago, and the result is some pretty amazing research, a real contribution to society. And it was born out of his own creativity and pursuit of knowledge. And it also resulted in a much happier and healthier man. So when we come back, Chris Martinson of PeakProsperity.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Chris Martinson. Now, Chris is an economic researcher and futurist specializing in energy resource depletion. As one of the early econo bloggers who forecasted the housing market collapse, and stock market correction years in advance. Chris rose to prominence with the launch of his video seminar, The Crash Course, which has also been published in book form. Now, The Crash Course is a popular and extremely well-regarded distillation of the interconnected forces in the economy, energy, and the environment that are shaping the future, one that Chris believes will be defined by increasing challenges to growth as we've known it. And as an encore to that work, Chris co-authored the book Prosper, which I'm sure many of you have read, along with Adam Taggart, about how to survive and thrive in the new world order that he envisioned. So, Chris, thank you very much for being with us on the show today.
1: Why, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here with you and all your listeners today. So first
0: of all, tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, you have a PhD from Duke in neurotoxicology, an MBA from Cornell. I mean, how does that background led you to where you are today?
1: Well, it turns out to have been the perfect background because what I am today is translator, mostly. I take very complex subjects and I distill them so people can internalize them, understand them, and take actions off of them. And so if we rewind my background, the science, anybody who's been in one of the hard biological sciences knows that you can get to the frontier of what we know in about six months of investigation. There's so much that's unknown. So I love data. And when you're at the edge of what's known and unknown, you're at that creative frontier where we just don't know, you know, you're probing your way forward. So having the facility with data plus coupled with that humbled sort of sense of, geez, we don't know much, right? So I have an open mind. I like the data. The MBA gives me facility with numbers. You know, I went in corporate finance for a while. And then before I began this work, which I say I'm very lucky to be performing, which is really mission oriented for me. I was in strategy management, so I got used to how stories really can shape our lives as individuals, as corporations, all of that. That's really all a strategy is a story people can uh, rally around and understand. So that's my background and enabled me to really get to this point of being somebody who's assembling large bits of data and evidence, converting them into a story where people can see the story and then decide for themselves what they want to do with that in their own lives. So what was the
0: aha moment? Because obviously you went from corporate sort of the usual high achiever route to, uh, you know, it's sort of an original road less traveled at this point. So tell us a little bit about that journey.
1: Well, let me preface it by saying that nobody should ever ask me for career advice. (laughs) What I did was I was vice president of a company called SAIC and around 2002, I had that moment of enlightened self-interest. My portfolio got shredded, right? I was a genius up through the 90s like everybody, could do no wrong. And then a bunch of my portfolio got absolutely killed in 2001. And so I started getting curious, like, wait a minute, what happened here? I didn't like the fact that um, I actually, not much of my portfolio, but I actually held some WorldCom and which is a stock that went bust due to fraud. Yeah. And so I'm like, how did that happen? How does something like that happen? You know, my broker at the time had recommended it. I won't say the firm, but a very large firm people would recognize, right? How does it happen that a firm that large with that many people working for it, analyzing as deeply as they profess to not see this? Because once it happened, I look back and I'm like, obvious fraud, right? right? So I, that's where my enlightened self-interest was like, holy, wait a minute. There's a system here running that I didn't understand. So I had to unpack it. Because I'm not going to leave my money with people who are going to lie to me and fabricate stuff and take it. So that was my first understanding that Wall Street wasn't really just sort of like a snake that had some good, you know, but as long as you understood that, but it was a reasonable place to invest. That was where I first understood and began unpacking just what a cesspool it really is and seeing this game for what it was and all of that. So that was my first sort of like moment. But I'm a curious guy. I can't leave well enough alone. That wasn't sufficient, so I started looking at the larger economy, then I understood how money is actually made in the system, and that was a real shocking moment for me because it's not hard to understand, it's just not taught. And there's something there even in the fact that why wouldn't you teach something like that? It's easy. Oh, because the system of money, the way it's created is confers extraordinary advantages on those who operate the system. And all of that. So it was an awakening process. So if that started in 2001, early 2002, by mid 2003, my wife and I had sold our house on the coast of Mystic, Connecticut, a nice five bedroom house and my fishing boat. And we moved to a smaller, more rural sort of community in Western Massachusetts. And we changed how we educate our children, kind of who our friend circles were. That's where I quit and started a blog, which is why we're not asking me for career advice. And so we made a lot of very big changes based on the work that ultimately became the crash course.
0: Yeah. So your central thesis is really that trends in the economy, energy and the environment that they've finally caught up with us and are converging on a very narrow window of time. Can you explain that to our audience?
1: Absolutely. This is really one of the most exciting, but possibly one of the more challenging times to be alive as a human. So what's happening, people call me a futurist sometimes. It's not true. I'm a trend extrapolator, right? It's kind of like go of a hammer. I'm going to extrapolate. It's going to fall to the ground. I'm going to be right, you know, pretty much every time, unless something weird happens with gravity. So what I did with like the housing bubble and other pieces, I just looked at where things were going. I said, this is unsustainable, right? This doesn't make any sense logically, common sense, mathematically. Well, we have a number of these all converging on that narrow window of the future, which are shaped by really big things like this every calorie of food that anybody listening to this eats has about 10 calories of fossil fuels embedded in it secretly in the growing the harvesting the fertilizing the transportation the cooling refrigeration freezing cooking all of those steps all require fossil fuels and about the year 2030, fossil fuels hit a peak and slowly start a long descent. But at the same time, our economy only runs and expands because of expanding energy flows through it. So if we want more economic growth, we're going to need more energy flows coming through it. And as well, you know we look at where demographics are and we look at soil loss, species loss, there's all these things happening all at once that individually I think create a sense of concern in some people when they look at them, but when you put them all together, to me, it's inescapable that, you know, it's not that we want to do something about these trends that are converging, it's that we need to. And so once people get to that moment of saying, aha, I maybe I need to look at these things and begin doing something, that's really where the invitation comes in this story to reorganize your life and begin to shape who you are and what you do around the facts as we understand them today. And it's actually a fairly wonderful place to be when you get there, but I got to admit, it's a little rough at first to confront the data as it stands, because there really there aren't any solutions to some of them. There are only ways that we're going to be able to manage the outcomes of those pieces. So we
0: talk a lot about some of the economic issues that you've talked that you allude to in your work. And obviously, you know, we have some of the issues with regard to the environment that we hear in the news The thing that might be less common knowledge to people is the energy crisis that you're talking about, particularly with fossil fuels and oil. Can you give us a little bit more detail on your findings there?
1: Well, sure, absolutely. The most important thing to understand about energy is what is actually a true source of energy. So humans, like any organism, and so this is my biological background coming, so if you take a vat and you put a lot of sugar in it and you introduce yeast into that vat, they're going to go, wee, and they're going to grow into that available energy, and actually they're going to grow past it and they're going to use it up uh, suffer a collapse later on. Every organism follows this, whether you know it's hares and rabbits and foxes or whatever the pattern is, all organisms grow into their available energy, which is fine. So humans have actually grown into fossil fuels as a primary energy source, and that's fine if and only if you've got a plan for the fact that these are finite and leaving aside even the fact that burning them has impacts on the atmosphere and ocean acidification and other things. They're a finite energy source, and so what we need is a plan to figure out where we want to be, when, not if, but when, they finally begin to peak and go the other direction. And here's where the story gets really interesting and challenging. And without getting too wonkish about this, humans have gone through energy transitions multiple times in our life cycle. So once upon a time, we were all biomass. That's wood, peat, coal, you know, stuff like that. Wood peat and other dung and stuff like that. So biomass, we're burning that stuff, it's great. But then we discover coal. And coal is way better than wood. It's more concentrated and it can create a hotter flame and you can run steam engines on it you can forge steel differently. So when we got to coal, all of a sudden, we started transitioning to it. But the lesson from history was it took about 40 to 50 years to even make a halfway transition to coal because energy transitions just take time if you're going to pursue them economically. Meaning when we were on wood, what we had were sailing ships. They are operated by wind. Steamships were way more effective, a lot more cost effective. But everybody didn't just burn their sailing ships down and buy steamships. They used up the embedded capital. Allowed the, the sailing ships to basically rot away and then made the transition over to the steamships. Took time. Same thing. We went from coal to oil. Oil's way better than coal. When we first you know, got our hands on oil, it was amazing. You know, And you can run jets on it and all kinds of things. But again, like 60 years before oil was just a third of the energy mix, displacing or adding to the, the mix of both biomass and coal. So again, it just takes decades to move from a worse to a better energy source.
0: When does that period come when we're sort of running out of oil or where we get to the point where we have to transition in the crisis period?
1: Well, I think that we're probably going to face a series of mini crises along the way. And the first one I'm eyeballing is probably around the year 2019 to 2020. Could come as early as 2018, but I don't think so. And here's why. To produce oil, you have to find it. The last three years, 2016, 15, and 14, have been the worst three years for oil discoveries in the entire data series that I have that just goes back to the 1920s. So we've discovered less oil. And the reason for that is that companies have pulled back, the oil companies have pulled back a little over $1.2 trillion in what are called FIDs, First Investment Decisions which are the decisions they make to try and go and see if they can explore for and find more oil where it is. So all the easy stuff that's on land is pretty much gone. It's known. Now they're down to the harder stuff. This is in the Arctic. It's in the deep water areas. It's nasty stuff like the Orinoco belt in Venezuela or tar sands in Canada, like really awful stuff, but what we would call bottom of the barrel kind of stuff. Those finds need at least $100 a barrel to go after, and we have prices that are less than that. So- Fast forward, it takes four to five years for fields, once they're discovered, to come online. That's the oil that's going to be missing in this story starting about 2019. At the same time, existing conventional oil fields, those are in the North Sea, they're in the Middle East, they're here in North America, everywhere, the existing ones that were prosecuted in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s are all in decline. They're losing about four to five percent production on average per year. So, A, we're not finding and bringing more online. B, the older stuff is dwindling away. So, C is the shortfall that I see coming at some point in the future. That'll be the first mini crisis. And it could be a pretty major one. And my prediction for that is we see oil prices rise to, again, levels that we saw before, well over $100 a barrel. But this time, those high oil prices, now we have to go over to the economy. This is why I jump back and forth between economy, energy, and environment. If we have energy prices suddenly shoot up, now we wander over to the economy and we notice a world that had $157 trillion in debt in 2007, probably has closer to $240 trillion of debt today. High debt levels and high energy prices just don't work. That's what really precipitated the crisis. In July 2008, oil hit 147 a barrel. Months later, Greece was in crisis. The whole pig structure, right? Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, all that.
0: So an interesting corollary to that, Chris, is I actually spoke with a guy by the name of Paul Maselli the other day, Paul Mike Maselli. They were doing a webinar for my investor club. And a couple of things that were interesting out of there. One is they're obviously in this fracking world, right? And one of the things that they were talking about is the cost of drilling and fracking has gone down substantially in the last few years. And what's interesting about that is that even though that's the case, You'd think that that would make it so, you know, that would affect oil prices in a certain way, but what's happened is as you know, OPEC for a while was trying to keep price of oil low, essentially to squeeze these guys out of the game. But the technology has gotten good enough where these guys can break even at $20 a barrel now, which was unheard of just a few years ago in fracking. So effectively what's happened is the guys in OPEC have given up on that strategy because they can't survive at $20 a barrel or $30 a barrel. So they're going to Paul and Mike Sully were talking about essentially how that's the reason why they want to try to drive oil prices back up, because that strategy doesn't really work for them. So effectively, we're still talking about rising energy prices, even though technology has gotten better.
1: Well, yeah, we have to understand that really fracking is a phenomenon that's kind of limited to the United States right now. Right, Other countries aren't really allowing it. Other countries don't have the infrastructure to prosecute it. Other countries don't have the political climate that would be reasonable to enter into it. A lot of reasons why the United States is kind of it right now for fracking. Total fracking output from the United States running at about three and a half million barrels a day. It's great. Could it rise to four or five? It could. No question about that. But worldwide oil consumption is a little over 90 plus million barrels a day. So the United States total fracking contribution is in the single digit percentages. Let's call it five just to be even Mm -hmm. about it. Could we take that to six? Sure. But when you're looking at the overall thing, world oil prices are set on the world export market. And there's about 40 million barrels a day that's on the world export market if that drops to 38 and the world still wants 40, that marginal gap of 2 million barrels a day that's missing, that's what drives the price, not technology in the United States. So you got to keep that square. Second, I have analyzed the decline in the all-in per barrel costs of fracking and about 15% of that gain is due to new technology, which is amazing. But 85% of the gain that's been experienced in that breakeven price has been due to the oil drillers dropping their prices because they got clowned. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So when those drillers get called back, a lot of that, hey, we break even at 20, creeps up to 30, creeps up to 40, creeps up to 50. It Once the oil prices go up and we have the drillers all back in, we're going to discover the technology was a little piece, but just look at the oil services index stock prices and you'll understand the tale of the story. They got clocked, yep. but when this boom bust industry goes back to boom stage that flips again and try to not be too surprised that well costs go back up again.
0: Yeah. And I think that was part of their thesis too, it was effectively a good time to buy in that regard. I mean, from an mm-hmm. investment standpoint, because everything that's around oil, you know, the, the services, the technology and, and so on and so forth is cheap right now because yep. the price of oil is cheap. So if we talk about oil, ultimately it's central to economic growth, just sort of take a different perspective. So I interviewed someone recently who's in the solar space who talked about the incredible pace of technology that's going on there, including battery technology, which is really driving down solar prices very, very quickly. Do you believe that this kind of technology in particular is, you know, it's sort of too late to the game right now to help us sort of bridge that peak
1: oil period? I do. And here's why. So when I say fossil fuels peak around 2030, and that's a model that I happen to believe in that somebody's put together, is it off by 10 years possibly? But you know, somewhere out there, right now, if we look at total contributions to total energy by alternatives, that's wind and solar primarily, what we're finding is that it's still measured in the single digit percentages. I know it's been growing like crazy, but it's still very small amount. The necessary amount of investment that would be required to transition from and please nobody take this the wrong way but oil is a better fuel source than solar why because it's more concentrated you know a single liter of diesel oil you know how much acreage of solar panels you would have to have to create the amount of energy you can pull out of that single liter it's astonishing mm-hmm. right so it's more mm-hmm. diffuse not saying we shouldn't do it but there's two things people need to understand one the capital costs of moving from a more to a less dense energy source. The capital costs are extraordinary, right? And the second thing is the build out time. Anybody who understands like when you use the word Giga or Peta, you know, these big giant numbers, like we have quadrillions of BTUs of fossil fuels that need to be replaced. And we're gonna be trying to replace them at the same time the energy output from those same fossil fuels is dwindling. So now it's a competition. And if we're smart and rational and intelligent as species, what we'll do is we'll say, great, we'll use whatever fossil fuel BTUs we've got left to build out this next energy infrastructure. But I would be such an optimist, right? right. I don't see that happening. Yeah. You know. So what I see happening instead is the best-selling vehicles in the United States for the last three years running is the F-150 truck. I see us still buildings that are not even remotely up to basic insulation codes that you would say, hey, we're taking this seriously, stuff like that. So- It's doable. The only credible plan I've seen put out so far was by the director of China's national energy grid. This is the firm that runs, state-run firm that operates the entire grid in China. So they're pretty well placed. They said the world would need to spend about $50 trillion to convert to alternatives just to solve the electricity part of this equation. So when I say energy, consider three big primary sources, right? Liquid fuels, which move things from point A to point B, We've got heating and cooling costs, which could be natural gas and things for industrial processes. And then we've got the electricity that we use to run that side of the equation. So $50 trillion worldwide, where we would cover desert regions with solar panels, we would put wind towers up in the Arctic, and we'd build these massive pipes to bring the energy where it was being produced to where it was being consumed. Think about that. $50 trillion. Are you crazy? I mean, we're measuring... Current worldwide investment in alternatives in the tens or hundreds of billions, depending on what year we're talking about. We would need a massive program that we got very serious about and probably in a global, not a national way to really accomplish that. And so this is tricky territory. And there's a lot of really bad reporting in this area where they use things like power when they mean electricity. This is Costa Rica provided 100% of its power last year from alternatives. Like, no, they didn't. They provided 100% of their electrical needs. At times, the rest of the time, they were still using liquid fuels to drive their cars. So transportation, let's be really clear, no matter how many solar panels you install today, they don't provide liquid fuels. Right. In that
0: regard, nuclear as well. I mean, capital costs, not a lot of small liquid fuel utilitarian opportunities there. (laughs) I'm putting liquid uranium in your car or something like that, (laughs) right? (laughs) Similar challenges, I assume.
1: Yeah. So as nuclear is conventionally practiced, which are these light boiling water reactors, I don't see a huge future for them. They they always have like massive cost overruns. We still don't know how to handle the waste that comes out of them on and on and on. And the tragedy in this is that there is a type of nuclear out there that the United States pioneered in the late 50s, early 60s is called thorium. Thorium is an element. It's a byproduct of uranium manufacturing. There's a lot of it. I think we have enough stored in the desert of Nevada to run the United States for a thousand years if we were using it in the thorium fuel cycle. It uses a uranium-233 cycle. It's not based on the 235. Uh, And thorium basically gets entirely consumed in this process. It produces way less radioactive waste than the other types. And thorium reactors, the way we constructed them was in a liquid fluoride, so it's a salt reactor. So it's, it runs at a very hot temperature and there's special metallurgy to handle hot liquid salts. But we figured it out and these things run. The problem with them was that they didn't make bomb grade materials on the back end. The fissile materials that were produced in this process were not useful to the military. So we turned away and China came over in the late 90s to, to went to the National Archives. I think they spent a hundred bucks and they got the plans for these things and ran back and so did India. And both countries are very actively producing, have thorium reactor programs right now, which actually would give me a lot of hope if we were pursuing that in the United States, because we have a lot of this stuff it clearly can operate at scale. They're very safe compared to other types of reactors because these things, as I mentioned, they're running hot, they're molten salt. If they go into runaway, what happens is they burn a plug out of the bottom of the reactor container. It drains into an Olympic-sized swimming pool and freezes. That's the worst that can happen. So there are things we could be doing. And that's the frustrating part yeah. about this conversation for me, Buck, is that there are things we can be doing, but we're not doing for reasons that don't make sense.
0: Right. They just make too much sense and we're too busy, you know, not doing things that proactively. But let's switch gears for a moment. And let's assume that the crisis is imminent, that peak oil is reality. You guys talk a lot about strategies on how to prepare this kind of problem in your book prosper can you talk about some of those
1: Well sure I'd love to so a lot of what you and I were just discussing is part of the problem definition side which says oh what you know what are the things that are unsustainable what can we do about them all that that's the knowing the knowing is useless without the doing and prosper is about well what do we do and there we're taking the approach of saying that it's up to individuals to Do something with this message. And all of the things that we're proposing in Prosper are ways for individuals to resume and take control for things that maybe we've either handed over or abdicated, take responsibility back in our own lives for being the change that we want to see or that we think the world needs. So Prosper is organized around eight different forms of capital. Financial capital, real important one. It's the first chapter on capital forms. We talk all about how now is possibly a time where you might want to consider first rededicating some of your financial capital to building these other forms that we can talk about in a minute, but also to having that capital that you do have, have it really be safe and secured in this environment where, again, I'd be happy to talk about it, but there's bubbles all over the place. We know what happens during bubble periods. There's potential systemic issues, yada, yada. So we're sort of in the preaching in the first take no losses, sort of like the alternative Hippocratic Oath for finances at this stage, right? Because we see some crazy times out there. But financial capital alone is not sufficient to really secure anything in your life. And so when we talk about building out these other forms of capital, asking people to do things that will add measurably to the quality of their life today, as well as provide some degree of insulation and resilience if certain futures arrive. But we're not about hunkering down and waiting for a blow that may never come. We're like, hey, what if you could do stuff today that would feel great and provide these benefits for the future? So the other forms of capital might be living capital. It's another form that we talk about building up. And that's the health of my own body. So in here, we might have a whole discussion about nutrition and what really works and how to become healthy, you know, because real happiness requires health. So we talk about. Your own body is a form of living capital to be improved and expanded on, as well. Living capital is the health of and cleanliness of the ecosystem around you. And I trade financial capital at my own house in Western Massachusetts. I spend money and I bring in compost and rock dust and other things. I'm building. I measure my health of my property in the depth of the soils in the orchard, the garden, other places. So. I get to live in complete beauty. I eat wonderful food. I have a pastime that I like to do. So this is an example of I am healthier and wealthier if I have abundant living capital, both inside me and around me. Another form is social capital. And this isn't just how many people you know, but how well you know the people in your life, ways in which you can begin to really thicken the ropes of connection with those who you are in community with so that you can begin to trust them more. And we know for a fact that during periods of crisis, like the one that's happening in Venezuela now, or just you know happened in Zimbabwe in the last decade, that people's social connections were the greatest measure of their thriving, and if not surviving, through those tough periods. So social connections become really critical, especially during downtimes, right? What's the old saw? You know, you don't find out who your friends are until you have a crisis.
0: Right. right? You had that profound photo on the summit at sea when you're doing a talk. Well, you had the contrast between what happened in New Orleans during Katrina, and you compared that to the Japanese nuclear meltdown. It was pretty profound, right?
1: Well, yeah, and that's speaking to cultural capital, which is the one form that you really can't influence all that much. So you either accept the one you're in with eyes wide open or you move. But what happened in New Orleans was, you know, Katrina comes, 1900 people died. There were lootings, rapes, murders. It just was anarchy because the culture of New Orleans was not well suited for a crisis that was very low cultural fabric. So it just shredded and people basically reverted to really baser instincts. And then we contrasted that with the 2011 earthquake and tsunami in Japan, where 25,000 plus people died, far greater tragedy overall. They had a nuclear meltdown at the same time. And we couldn't find a single recorded example of a fight breaking out over water in the food line of any rapes, murders, none of that. The culture of Japan is just much more suited towards managing adversity and operating collectively in some way than, say, New Orleans was. So the message from that was there are certain places that I wouldn't want to live in today because I value safety and security. Like, I don't like having to lock my doors and worry every time my kids are five minutes late coming home, right? right? So for me, that quality of life really begins with the culture of the place in which you find yourself. And so there, our only advice in the book is figure out if this works for you. (laughs) If it doesn't, move. (laughs) There you go. So the other capital, just so we get
0: some understanding, what other types of capital are there?
1: Knowledge capital is overlap between the stuff you've learned and the stuff you've actually practiced. So we're a big believer that every new skill that you actually can bring into your life actually doubles your chances of success at whatever you're doing. So we're really about gathering new skills. It's a very much we're a learning organization. If you're not constantly acquiring new skills, you're in some form of stasis. And for me, you know, my quality of life is really defined by that sense of movement and constantly expanding who I am. So we really knowledge capital is the piece we talk about there. And very wide subject. People, you know, whatever interests you is where you should go with that. But the most important one I'd like to talk about is actually emotional capital. So somebody could be rich in seven other forms of capital, but if all to pieces, the minute what they perceive to be adversity shows up in their life, it's all for naught. So emotional capital is a big piece of territory. It's got a whole long arc to it. Here's my arc. First, I was just this dude called Chris, and that's all I was. And I thought I knew what the world was and I knew how I worked. And then I discovered this first ability to separate my mind into an observer and you know witness and the other part, the, the monkey brain that's chattering away. And then from there, I was able to develop more and more consciousness to the point where I can take the reactions which are normal. So a reaction is somebody yells at you or a deal goes bad and your body clenches, right? You know, your breathing gets shallow, your eyes narrow down. That's the reaction. But to be able to separate the reaction from the response Now, that's a real trick, right? For me, it was. So emotional capital is about basically taking the hero's journey and going inwards, right? You know, you resist the call to adventure. You dive deep. There's some stormy seas down there, maybe a couple of monsters to slay. But you come back out of that to your village, to yourself, integrated and more whole. So that emotional capital turns out to be the most important thing. And and here's why. Let's take a big statistic. Right now, opioid Addictions and overdoses have overtaken gun deaths as the leading cause of non-natural death you know, in the United States around that, as well as suicides. Right at the top of the list again, suicides overtook car accidents in 2010 and never looked back. What does it mean when we're in a culture where people are committing suicide, becoming addicted, overdosing, all of that? Those are all evidence to me that these are people who are lacking in the emotional resilience they need. To begin navigating and managing the life that hand of cards they've been dealt. And so not to get all, you know, take it to such a dark area, but this is all completely addressable. If people understand that they are the architects of their life, that they are actually the creators of their life, and they can step out of this victim mentality of thinking that life does something to them rather than they are the ones who are out interacting with the world and creating the world they want. It's really, it's like one of the most profound life hacks I know about is I am now the creator of my life and I can do this in all sorts of ways. But the key to getting there was to go in first and begin pulling things out of my own shadow background and integrating them into myself. So with that, I think that the kind of future I see where if what I'm saying about the environment or energy or the unsustainable economy, if any one of those three is true, let alone all three, we're going to be facing really turbulent times. And the people who are going to really thrive through those times, because this represents opportunity as well as challenge, are going to be the people, Buck, who can most clearly let go of the old and embrace the new. And that's what emotional capital is all about.
0: Yeah. In many regards, what you're Sort of describing I, a lot of different thoughts What you're we talking. One is, you know, the whole concept behind mindfulness meditation, of course, is trying to get out of that sort of reactive mode and trying to, you know, live in the moment and understand who you are. The second thing that made me think about was Maslow's hierarchy, right? I mean, you're basically talking about self-actualization in, in many regards, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And the older I get, the more I realize that the bill of goods I was sold in this yeah. culture says, you know, here's what you do. Get the degree, get the job, work hard, save money, and then you get to retire. I'm like, Wait, whoa, whoa, time out. Is that when life begins? Here's my new mantra that came to me through my own emotional intelligence increasing is I'll do something if it makes me feel more connected and more alive. Right. Otherwise I won't do it. It's like my new barometer. Like if I'm facing a business deal or I'm thinking about a new hire or I'm thinking about who I'm in relationship with. It's easy now. I just go, is this feel good? <laughs> you know, no, is, you're right. It's, it's absolutely. If so I'll do it and I'll yeah. do it with complete passion and it'll flow and it'll be easy. Otherwise, it's going to cost me energy. It'll drain the circumstances, people, situations like they drain me. And that's just that's my personal internal barometer now that I listen to myself. It actually simplifies my life a lot.
0: So wow. one of the things that I think is very interesting, Chris, is that you know, you don't really even have to, I mean, for people listening out there who heard the first part of our discussion today, they say, well, you know, I don't know. I think technology is going to save the day and all that. But this is more than that. This is not just about, you know, the peak oil argument, which I think is obviously profound, but it's really talking about how do you live your life and, you know, how do you define wealth? We talk a lot about wealth in this show in, in terms of you know, what makes up wealth, it's not just financial, it's it's a lot of freedom and that sort of thing. So how do you define wealth? I mean, based on everything, you know, your self-actualization at this point and the way you see life.
1: Yeah. So if I could, I actually think of wealth and prosperity in slightly different terms. To me, wealth is easy. You know, money isn't wealth. Money has value because you can buy stuff with it. You know, you talk to somebody in Zimbabwe who had a hundred trillion dollars to their name, were they wealthy? Nope that bought, you know, a half a cup of coffee at one point. So wealth, it's the real tangible things in our life. You know, two hundred years ago nobody was confused by who the wealthiest person in town was. That's easy, it's the landowner, the largest landowner, right? Because that's where the wealth came from. Again to your Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, until you have your food, shelter, warmth, water taken care of, the rest of it's kind of irrelevant and safety down there as well. So that's what wealth is. Prosperity is a different thing where I have money in my prosperity circle, but I'm really prosperous when I'm healthy, when I've got as much money as I need to accomplish what I'd like to accomplish. I have great relationships to both self and other. When I have that peace and security, when I'm actually growing and growing into who I can really be. And the real key is that I don't think we're here to make a lot of money. I don't think we're here to just have children. I think we're here to discover what our actual true gifts are and to bring those into the world. And so the peak oil story is one thing, but I got to tell you, I'm looking at this from a more spiritual standpoint, which is I believe we're all here for a reason. And this is an extraordinary time to be alive. And either you're contributing to this next future or you're along for the ride. And so I'm pretty excited to be out here thinking that, okay, listen, I don't have all the answers. I have no clue how this is going to turn out, but I can feel that call to adventure that sits here right now because everything's going to be rewritten in the next 20 to 30 years. I might be wrong, but that's what my data tells me at this point. So even if you're
0: wrong, you're living a better quality of life.
1: Yeah. I'm thoroughly thrilled with how my life has, has turned out. It's absolutely wonderful. And if you'd taken me 10 years ago and showed me my life today, I wouldn't have believed you.
0: So you have a ton of resources available to help us understand your message And potentially to take action. Can you talk a little bit about those?
1: Sure. So, Peak Prosperity, that's like Mountain Peak, P E A K, prosperity.com is the main repository. About 90% of the information there is public. We do have a newsletter service for people who like to go a little deeper or who want to be kept up to date with how the world is unfolding. So, that's the main place to get to. We hold seminars once or twice a year. We've got one coming up in November that's going to go more deeply into. This emotional side in particular that you and I were talking about, this mindfulness and mastery side. And there'll be information on that at our website, of course. And we've got Crash Course is a book, it's a video series. We've got uh, Prosper is a book. And increasingly, we're coming out with more and more video material at this particular time. So, just creating a ton of content and all about how do we become more connected and alive in this really exciting time of history. It's just a fabulous community of people. You know, it sounds like our tribes might have some alignment. If I had to define who I have at my website as a community, they're curious people. Right. We're unafraid to examine turnover any rock, you know, what will, we'll, but we do it very civilly and we do it with data and we keep our beliefs checked at the door whenever possible.
0: This is really great stuff, Chris. And I want to thank you for being on Wealth Formula podcast today.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. What a wonderful conversation. Again, the website is
0: peakprosperity.com. I recommend everyone check this out, okay? I mean, this is something that could seriously change your life. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris Martinson today. I have two calls of action for you today. The first one, give some real thought to what you would do if you were in a position to do whatever you want in the world for the rest of your life. That is, if you had the opportunity for self-actualization, maybe some of you do already, but if you don't, just think for a moment. I mean, we all think about all the time that we wish we had, but if we had it, what are we going to do with it? If you start investing in cash flow based tangible assets, you might get to that point of financial security sooner than you think. I mean, seriously, folks, I talked to a lot of you on the phone. A number of you have multiple six figure incomes or better. I mean, you can get to this point fairly soon. You might need to join Investor Club on WealthFormula.com to do it. I'm sort of halfway joking there. So do that. Try to figure out what you would do. If you got to that point, and the only thing I'll say is it can't just be leisure because just pure leisure is just the road to dying early, in my view. The next call to action is go to peakprosperity.com and watch the Crash Course videos. Now, if Chris is right about his predictions, you don't want to be surprised by all of this. Anyway, that's it for me today. Thanks for listening to Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey. Until next week.